Live from the hills of Judea is the Land of Israel Fellowship with Rabbis Ari Abramowitz and Jeremy Gimpel. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Land of Israel Fellowship. So good to see you all. Hi, Lucy. Hi, Cal. Where's it? Where's where's it? Where's Cal? Only see Ardell. Is Cal not here today? All right. Oh, he's on his way. Okay, that's good. Shelly, good to see you. Ryan, so nice to see you. Cindy, hello. <laughs> good to see you all. So good to see you. I can't tell you. This fellowship is an island of sanity. It's an island of sanity for me. That's what it is. The world is so crazy now that coming together is an absolute mechaya for me. It is just a life-giving um, blessing. It's so impactful. It's like a anchor in normal, good, positive, happy, holy friends. Thank God. And so it's a really special time of the year. And, you know, we've been counting the Omer for almost seven weeks. And Shavuot is right around the corner. We just celebrated Yom Yerushalayim. And that in and of itself is a really deep teaching. Um, you know, if, if we don't see ourselves as a part of an ancient religion with rituals and rites, but we are a part of a living dynamic in reality, a living relationship with God that is constantly unfolding, then Jerusalem Day is situated perfectly right before Shavuot. You know, as we count the Omer, each one of the days has a specific attribute. And it happens that Yom Yerushalayim falls on the first day of the last week of the Omer, which in the spiritual realm is the day of Chesed Shebamalchut, love within the kingdom. And if there was any day that Jerusalem would be reunited and the Temple Mount would be in our hands, and we would begin our process of rebuilding our capital and reuniting Jerusalem once again, what would be the ultimate day? The love within the kingdom, Chesed Sheba Malchut, is the perfect day. And it's not just that. We are kind of in the between the time of Passover and Shavuot, and we're commanded, listen, these are connected. I want you to count the days from the first day of Passover all the way until Shavuot making sure that you don't separate these two. These two are twin holidays. And as soon as the first day of Passover is over, you're going to start counting. You're going to start counting all the way up until Shavuot. And it's almost like Passover was our physical liberation. We were like liberated from slavery. We were free from our oppressors. And Shavuot was our spiritual freedom. It's where we finally got direction. I mean, walking aimlessly in the desert may be free from oppression, but that's not real freedom. That's just random. Freedom is when we chose to dedicate our life to a mission. It was when we dedicated our life toward a purpose, but gave us direction toward Israel. And those two play off each other, the physical and the spiritual. And then what do we celebrate in this counting of the Omer? We have Yom HaAtzma'ut, which was the physical liberation of Israel after the Holocaust. We declared independence and won our war. And then Yom Yerushalayim really represents our spiritual liberation. What was all of that for? Why did we need a state of Israel to begin with? And the answer is none other than to build God's kingdom on earth. That is our purpose. That's what we are doing here. That's what Jerusalem represents. And that's the stage that we're in. So from Passover to Shavuot, from Yom HaAtzmaut to Yom Yerushalayim, we're right now in between the two. And that's what I want to talk about today, because this time is so special. And before we do that, what I would love to do more than anything 
is I would love to just take a moment and kind of bring our hearts together and start our fellowship off with the tefillah. And I've been teaching a lot about tefillah soon. And I, I'm, I think that I'm going to dedicate a few sessions of our fellowship to prayer. And I'm thinking of a unique way to do it. I haven't exactly figured it out yet, but I want to do something different. I had a group of Jewish women come to my house. Um, it must have been Wednesday night. And they were from all over the Northeast. And they're very religious women. And, but they live like in Brooklyn. So imagine being a very spiritual, religious person, and you're in Brooklyn. Like, could you imagine a worse place to be spiritual? It's like so difficult there. And they came out to the farm and I brought them into my home and they saw guitars there. And they said, oh, Jeremy, could you, could you do a song for us? And what I'm going to tell them, no. <laughs> so I said, uh, I'd like to do something even more. If you want a song, I'd like to do something a little bit more than a song. I would love to, for us to, to really pray together, but I really want to talk about prayer. Because prayer in English is not the word tefillah in Hebrew. Prayer in English comes from the Latin word, which means to beg. And there is a type of prayer, which is called va'et hanan, and Moses begs to God. But that's not prayer. That's one type of prayer. The standard Hebrew prayer is called tefillah, and that's a different word. And when we lehit palel, when we pray, lehit palel is a reflexive verb, meaning Lehit labesh is I'm putting on my clothes. Lehit palel, when we say that, it means that we're actually doing something to ourselves. So Hebrew prayer is not so much about trying to change God, but it's more about aligning ourselves with God's will. It's from a place of total humility saying, I don't know, God knows. I want to align my will with his will. And when I align my will with God's will, God's will will be done in my life. So lehit palel is sort of like figuring out how to tune our spiritual antenna. It's kind of like sometimes we get crooked throughout the day. And we're like, eh, I want to straighten it up so I get good reception. So that when I need to make a choice in life, who do I need to marry? Where should I accept this new job? Should I go left? Should I go right? Should I move to Fort Worth, Texas? Or should I stay in Colorado? How do you make decisions like that? I don't know. The only way to make a decision is to go deep inside and to really tune in and pray that you're getting good reception and that you're going to fulfill his will in your life. That's the essence of prayer. That is what tefillah actually is. And so explaining this to the people in my home, I said, okay, so what I want to do now is I want to just say a, sing a song of thanks. And it's the first prayer that we say in the morning. And what I want to really do now is I just want you to really, really think about all the things we're grateful for as we sing this song of thanks. It's the first prayer every Jew says when they wake up in the morning. And you don't need to say the words with me. I'll sing a song. And I just want you to think about your husband, think about your wife, think about your children, think about your friends, think about your loved ones that are all around you. We're so much to be grateful for. We have so much to be grateful for. And you know, my father's a neurologist, a doctor of the brain. And our brain works with pathways, neurological pathways. And the more you think a certain way, you literally build stronger and stronger connections in your brain. So most of us have very strong pathways towards concern, towards worries, towards uh, stress, towards anxiety. And we have like highways towards all the bad stuff. 
And then we have little dirt roads toward gratitude, little dirt roads <laughs> towards like the positive emotions. And so what is tefillah doing? It's helping us build neural pathways that when we wake up in the morning, we should feel gratitude. And then we build that pathway. And then all of a sudden we become more grateful. We start living with gratitude in our life. And that is so connected to what we're about to learn. So I start singing a song, playing my guitar and just singing those words of being thankful to God. And I'm telling you, and Ari and I both, we have a tendency to exaggerate because it makes the story better. And so like a little bit of sizzle along with the steak, you know, that doesn't hurt anyone. But I'm telling you right now, I'm literally, I'm not exaggerating. 90% of the women there at the end of this song were crying in my home. And I, that was a very shocking experience for me. That had never happened before. But, you know, there was about, I, I think, between 35 uh, women, about 30 of them, at least, maybe more, were crying. I mean, and they're fancy women from, from the Bronx and Brooklyn. Their, their makeup is like rolling down their face. And I'm, I was like, what is it? Tequila walks in here. What is she going to think? All these like women are crying. And I'm like, what did I do to them? What happened there? And they said that they were just so happy to really feel grateful. And they said they came to the Arugot farm and they know that we sold our home. And we don't even own our home. Our home belongs to the place. And we'd given up all the, the people in New York. They're all working for all their stuff. And, and how authentically grateful I was to be alive, to be married to Tehillah, to have my children with me, to just have this host group. I'm just, I'm a grateful dude. I just I'm so happy. And they said they were just so touched just for themselves, feeling really, just feeling gratitude. And so that's so important for this time that we're in. And we're going to get to that soon. But I do want to just lead us in a prayer and let our hearts be open. When we feel gratitude, our hearts open up, and that allows God's messages to enter into our hearts. When we feel entitled, it's like, I deserve this. It's closed. Gratitude is a feeling of openness. It's like, wow, thank you. You feel a little bit vulnerable, because when you start really feeling grateful for all the things that you have, you're vulnerable that you might lose them. You think about, like, I'm so grateful that I have what I love, that it's a scary feeling to be really grateful, because you start realizing how fragile, how precious those things really are. And so it's an open feeling and openness is also vulnerable, but that is the Judean way to feel grateful, to live in gratitude. And, uh, you know, Tal Ben-Shachar, the Harvard professor, he says the most um, studied way, like this is scientifically studied and proven, you want to live a happy life. The greatest way to increase your happiness is before you go to bed at night, when you wake up in the morning, think about the things you're grateful for. You can write them down. You can say them out loud. You can think about them. That is scientifically proven to be the best method for being happy in life. And lo and behold, what do we do when we wake up in the morning? We, we say a prayer of gratitude and we feel gratitude. So how beautiful that the ancient Judean tradition points us exactly in the direction of how to live happy lives, how to feel fulfilled, how to do what we need to do in the world. There's a lot of darkness out there. So it takes a lot of spiritual strength to be able to push out the darkness and bring the light. And the source of that, the core of our being, should be a being of gratitude. And so, Hashem, thank you for today. Thank you for this fellowship. Thank you for this time together. This is the best part of my week. Every week returning to my dearest friends. Every week returning to this time. Returning to this place. Hashem, thank you for bringing us from all over the world. From Switzerland and from Africa and from the United States and Canada. Thank you for gathering us together. A remnant of believers from around the world to learn Torah, to prepare ourselves for your holy times. Thank you for connecting us to the land of Israel. Thank you for bringing us all together. Thank you for all the loved ones in our life. 
Thank you for our health. Thank you for our minds. Thank you for our eyes and for our ears and for the delicious food we had today. We are grateful for everything that we have in our life. We bless you. We thank you. We want with that thanks to give back. We want to help you. We want to bring your light into the world. Please fix us. Help us be a reflection of your light in the world. Help us represent your will in the world. Help us live as a tselem, as an image of you on earth. Help us live out your vision of what it would look like if the world was already perfect. What would it would look like if Mashiach was already here? Let us in this small fellowship represent that on earth, that there should be people from so many different backgrounds and so many different languages, a brotherhood of man under your fatherhood. Shem, thank you for this opportunity. Thank you for this time. It is the highlight of my week, all of us coming together for you, dedicating this time to you, dedicating our week to you. Thank you for this last Shabbat and thank you for the Shabbat to come. We are so looking for toward Shavuot and we so enjoyed celebrating Yom Yerushalayim. Thank you for every day that we have. Every day is a gift. Thank you, Hashem, for making us and growing us into the people you dreamed us to be. Give us strength to continue to rise up the ladder, to rise up closer to you. And as we rise up that ladder, let us bring everyone else around us up with us. Let us shine your light into their hearts and light up their worlds. Give us the strength to overcome the darkness. Thank you, Hashem, for today. Thank you for everything. May we soon all dance together in a rebuilt Jerusalem in the courtyards of your third temple. Amen. Okay, my friends, here we are. Um, what I want to do now is I, I have a mahala. I have a journey that I want to take us on. And so I need a little bit of time. So what I want to do is I want to pass over the microphone to Ari, because of course I want to hear what Ari has to say. Is Ari here with us? I hope he is. I don't actually see him on the screens here. I see everyone else. I I'm here, Jeremy. I'm here. Oh, there he is. There he okay, good. good. I just wanted to make sure because I'm feeling great. I wanted to make sure you made it. And so I want to pass over the baton to Ari, and then I will take us on a journey. The last week of the Omer, throw Yom Yerushalayim all the way to Shavuot, I hope. And I hope it will make the Shavuot that much more meaningful for us. So Ari, take it away. Shalom, Jeremy. Shalom, fellowship. Um, I'm very excited, Jeremy, for this mahalach, this journey you're about to take us on. Uh, it sounds like it's much needed, the right thing at the right time. But I do want to talk about the Torah portion, too. I don't want that, that to get lost, you know, because, uh, you know, I remember when I was young in grade school, when we get to these portions, you know, we're not only starting a new portion now, but a new book, the book of Bamidbar. We get to this book, and this portion, and, and I'd often just sort of zone out. You know what I mean? Like, it was just like a lot of repetition, a lot of numbers, a lot of counting. But as the years go on, I've really come to see that the seemingly detailed, nuanced portions contain some of the deepest and most beautiful truths. And sometimes, you know, when we have big days that just happen or that are coming up, like Yom Yerushalayim and Shavuot, you're going to prepare us for right now. Sometimes we run the risk of missing the Torah portion of that week. And I, so I don't want that to happen. And this Torah portion is, uh, it starts with the Jews in the desert, Bamidbar, right? In the wilderness, that place of confusion and desolation. And that really we all know too well, that place which um, I think on a symbolic level 
We live most of our lives in that place, in the desert of confusion and not seeing things super clearly, trying to make order out of the disorder and sense out of that which uh, so often can just seem senseless. But within this chaos and confusion of the, uh, of the trek of the children of Israel through the wilderness, we see this beautiful divine order beginning to take shape within the Israelite camp, an order which I believe hints to an even deeper truth regarding the dynamic that all of humanity will take as we enter the days of the final redemption, which I think is starting to happen right now, or has started to happen already. We're in the thick of it right now. So as you can see on this aerial diagram of the Israelite camp in the desert, Tabitha, if you could put that up. This is an aerial, it's, it's from a, a book I was reading to Dvash actually called The Little Midrash Says, which sounds very childish, but is actually really deep and really good. And I've started reading it just on my own without Dvash involved. And, you know, some of the scholars in the nearby settlement are looking at me reading this child's book. And I'm like, well, this is where I'm holding right now. This is what it is about. But this is a, a diagram of the Israelite camp. And it's all around the Mishkan, the tabernacle right in the middle, which is surrounded by, you know, on one side we see there it says Moshe, Aaron, and their sons on the east, and Gershon, Kahat, and Merari, the three sons of Levi and their families on the north and the south and the west of the inner periphery, you know, immediately surrounding the tabernacle. And the next concentric borders around that are, are the 12 tribes, three of them on each side, each tribe having its own flag, with its own colors and its own symbol. And then, in a really cool way, a unique flag and symbol for each of the triad of tribes. Like Yehuda, Yisachar, Zvulun, each had their own tribe. There was a lion, and it had its own verse under it. It said, Kuma Hashem, Vecha. God, you shall rise up and scatter our enemies because they were the first ones to push forth when they traveled. They were sort of the tip of the spear. So they were the lion. And, the... and so each one of them had their own each three had their own flag also, which was really cool. But um, while each of these flags for each of the individual tribes did help each Israelite know where to return when it was time to mobilize and to travel where they all sort of geographically belonged. And by the way, if you go to many synagogues, particularly in America, they have these stained glass windows. And most synagogues that have stained glass windows have the flags of each of the tribes on those windows. And so these, each flag showed the Israelites where to go and where to travel, but on a, a deeper level, it wasn't just geographic. Each flag reminded the members of the tribes what their deepest strengths and talents and spiritual predispositions were. You know, they helped each Israelite remember what their individual contribution was to the greater good of the nation. You know, some excelled in, in war and battle and being soldiers and others in spiritual pursuits and others at commerce, and so on. And so each member of each tribe had a pretty good idea of who they were and what they were in the, in the world. You know, what, what they were here to do because of their tribes and their flags. It, it gave them direction. And, uh, and, you know, right now in Israel, in the wake of this whole Supreme Court reform conflict, uh, you know, as much of the passions are starting to fade a little bit, and the leftist media in Israel is trying to fan the flames of division. Sound familiar to your local medias? 
So they're fanning the flames of division between the different sectors of the country, particularly between the Haredi ultra-Orthodox, who are dedicated to Torah learning and the more uh, spiritual pursuits, while the, uh, against the more secular business-minded, uh, who sometimes serve more in the army and perceive themselves as more productive in a practical sense. And the media is trying to exacerbate and multiply and amplify this resentment between these two demographics. But these differences that the media is focusing on, they're far from new. You know, in biblical times, there were two tribes that I think most starkly represented this difference in the most extreme way, and they were Yisachar and Zvulu. Um, one was the spiritual pursuit, and one was the, um, what's the word, Jeremy? The, uh, you know, the, the economy, working on, on the commerce. But rather than, you know, resent each other, they saw each other uh, as completing one another. And they shared in both the spiritual merit and in the physical abundance, and they really loved each other. So according to Rav Chaim Kanievsky, the reason that it worked in biblical times, the reason this type of cooperative, mutual appreciation and respect of differences worked in the desert was because it was all revolving around the Mishkan, because God was at the center of it. When everybody's deepest why is serving God, when everybody's deepest motivation is to contribute in their own special way to the greater good of sanctifying Hashem's name in the world, then everybody's individual unique talents could fully manifest. You know, I actually experienced this on a very micro level firsthand around my father's passing, because I've always had a loving relationship with my sisters, but there was also some tension there. You know, like with a lot of siblings, uh, Miriam, my older sister was, you know, I always felt like we, me and my younger sister felt that she was too confrontational, too combative, too rough around the edges, a little scary. And Yael, my younger sister, she was too sensitive and too delicate. And I was too, you'll have to ask them what I was too much, maybe too in your face, I guess they would have said. You guys are like about, the three bears. There's like the too soft and it's too hot and it's too cold. You guys are like the like Goldilocks and the three bears. Okay. Okay. One can say that. Um, but I think if you ask my sisters, they would say that I was maybe a little bit too, you know, in your face or about spirituality or religiousness. Maybe they would say that even though over the years, I think that changed, but either way, um, you know, but during the chaotic, painful and very demanding months leading up to my father's death, I think we all came to, to deeply appreciate our differences even more, even more than appreciate we were thanking God for our differences because there were wars that needed to be fought. And Miriam was the only one that could do it. She was the commander in chief. She was the warrior on the front lines. The minute one battle ended, she was, I was like catching my breath. She would dive in attacking the entire cardiology unit or the entire, you know, just to whatever needed to happen. She was there leading and fighting each battle. And knowing Miriam was on all of that allowed Yael to bring the serenity and the affection and the warmth to my father that only she could, which allowed me to be there for him spiritually, uh, walking the journey with him from this world to the next, hand in hand every single day. And so, you know, we all had some of the, some business in each other's world, but overall, we were each able to fully manifest our strengths and gifts to contribute to our father's overall well-being because we completed each other in such a beautiful, perfect way that we never appreciated before that.
Um, but why don't we see those differences growing up? Why all the fights and the wasted energy trying to criticize and to change and, and to fix each other? What, what was the difference between all those years and the last few months? And I believe the difference is that over the last few years, well, over the last few months, I'm sorry, we had a very clear shared goal. That we had a shared why. And what was our why? Our why was about how we could best serve and show love to our Abba, to our Father, who we loved more than words can say. And that was the reason why the tribes were able to coexist with such blessing and mutual appreciation during their time in the desert, because they had a shared why. Because it all revolved around the Mishkan. The Mishkan was in the center. Because they were positioned around God's dwelling place on earth. Because they were each contributing their unique talents and strengths to serving their Father in heaven. And over the last number of years at the farm, I think we've started seeing moments of this truth on an international level, manifesting at the farm. You know, looking back at a lot of the darkest moments in history, um, you know, they were in Germany during the Holocaust, and people would marvel at the efficiency and meticulousness of the German war machine, the way they were able to set up these and build these complex, massive concentration camps in just a few days was really like a feat. But for those of you who've been with us over the past few years, you've seen the th that exact meticulous Germanic perfection being used in tshuva and repentance on behalf of many of them were children and grandchildren of Nazis who were using these skills to build our, our farm, to build the pergolas and our breathtaking chuppah marriage canopy deck behind our house of prayer that, that Jewish families will be established upon. To have to show that, that picture there real quick. You know, so to see those very skills and, and gifts from God being used not to destroy each other, but to sanctify his name, it's like a little glimpse into redemption. And our friends, another example, there's so many examples, but one of the Wallers, you know, Christians from Tennessee, with decades and generations of agricultural experience that have been helping us and other farmers with our planting and our, our pruning and the farms that we're building. And that's, I think, part of what redemption really is about at the core. Instead of the nations of the world trying to destroy each other with war and hate, each will appreciate the other and love each other, not despite our differences, but because of them. Because when our knowledge of God is like water that covers the sea, our hearts will be filled with such love for our Father in heaven, who loves all of us and will feel that and will know that, and then we'll be so grateful that Hashem has each of his children there to serve him in the way that only they can. I know it's hard to imagine, but I truly believe that day is just around the corner. So my friends, may that day come soon for the entire world to love and appreciate each other's unique talents and differences as we've already started seeing happen in this fellowship and out here in these mountains in Judea. Amen. Shalom, my friends. Back to you, Jeremy. Thank you, Ari. Absolutely beautiful. Thank you. I really love that. I, I just kind of awesome that I wake up every morning so early to pray with you. We haven't done that. And now it's like every day. I'm like a disciplined soldier. I am number 10. I like get there. I'm on it. You can rely yes, on me. Yes, but you right? came in this morning and you were in rare form. You were really loud. You walked in. You're like, I'm number 10. I'm number 10. And everyone's like, what's going on? 
So yeah, you let it be very known to just, the other nine that you were number ten. I wanted people 10. to realize that I was number ten. I like, think they realized. I, I, I think they realized without that. But I'm glad you made it very clear. Like you know, go Jeremy. It's good for you. I just that's all I wanted. Yeah. Well, you got it. You got it. <laughs> I got it. I sure did. Okay. So now I want to take you guys on a little bit of a journey. But before we start the journey, I have to show you sort of the end, because this Yom Yerushalayim this week was unparalleled in the number of people that actually made it to the old city of Jerusalem. It was the most visited, the most um, explosive. It was like the more people, was like teeming with more people than ever before. And there was a real concern that maybe the government was gonna shut down the flag parade because the people on the left are saying, this is an assertion of power. Why do the Arabs have to suffer under our power? And when you see the video of the children dancing singing for Jerusalem, the eternal capital of the Jewish people, for God's kingdom on earth. And it's nothing to do with power. It's like these secular left-wing people, like for them, maybe their life is around power and manipulation and control. But you see the children of Jerusalem singing and dancing. All you can do is just be stunned at this next generation that is rising up in Israel. So I want to give credit first to this video that I'm about to show you. It just touched my heart because Ishai Fleischer, who is a soul brother of mine and of Ari's, found himself at such a cool spot right in the heart of the old city. And he filmed it as it was, as people were gathering in. He got there like as it was filling up. And just his words touched my heart. And then inside the crowd, his wife Malka took a video of the girls dancing. And then at the very end, that's already like an original video that you'll see. That's like the huge, massive celebration with, I don't know how many tens of thousands of, there's no room. It just spills out of the old city from the Kotel all the way through. So I just kind of pieced these pieces together and I just wanted you to taste what Jerusalem day was like in the old city of Jerusalem. So check this out. 2000 years we're waiting for this moment. We're not gonna miss it. Hashem, God has brought us back, brought us to our holy city, Jerusalem, to this holy wall and then to the holy temple. There's no way we're going to miss it. We're going to celebrate every minute of it. Out of the Holocaust, to our land, keeping our Torah with our holy city, Jerusalem. Thank you, Hashem. Thank you, Am Yisrael. It was just unbelievable energy. Like, you know, that's what you need to do, folks. Keep your eyes on Jerusalem. A group came to the farm today from Texas, and I was telling them, you know, look, you know, we pray towards Jerusalem. But if you really think about that, for 2,000 years during the exile, every synagogue that was built was built facing Jerusalem. So every synagogue in Texas faces the east, and every synagogue in Australia faces the west. And every synagogue in Europe faces the south. And every synagogue in Africa faces the north. 
And I'm like looking at like the faces here in the fellowship. And I met Shiloh and her family for the first time in Africa. And I'm like seeing their faces there now. And I'm thinking like, wow, they're like facing the North. And here we have Utah and from the, like in Brandon's in Colorado and he's facing the East. And then we have friends ours in the UK and like everyone's like for 2000 years, all of us like facing Jerusalem, facing Jerusalem. And what happens is the media is constantly throwing new things, keeping us distracted, keeping us scared, wars in the Ukraine and wars in this. And I, it's like, no, no, just keep your eyes focused on Jerusalem. Watch Jerusalem. Jerusalem is getting stronger. Jerusalem is getting better. Jerusalem is getting bigger. More Torah is being studied in Jerusalem than ever before. More Jews are living in Jerusalem than ever before. More prayers are being said in Jerusalem than ever before. Just keep your eyes on Jerusalem and you know which direction we're going. We are going up. The train has left the station. We're celebrating Yom Yerushalayim like it's like no one has ever seen anything like that in the old city. You saw with your own eyes. There was literally no place for anyone to be. It's just packed, teeming with people. And so here we are in the middle of Sfirata Omer, counting of the Omer, on our way to Shavuot, and we go through these two huge holidays, Israel Independence Day, Yom Ha'atzmut, and Yom Yerushalayim. And I, I want to now unpack all of that, and I want to do it through like the Torah. So in order to sort of connect the dots, you'll find something really amazing in the Midrash. This is one Midrash, and I'm going to read it a little bit in Hebrew, and I'll just translate it directly into English. And here's what it says. No, that's Joshua. That's a little bit later. I have one in Hebrew. It's just on my own. Thanks, Tabitha. What was the merit that the people of Israel were, um, what, what merited them to inherit the land of Israel? No. Through the mitzvah of counting the Omer. So already now, that's marvelous. We're saying somehow the counting of the Omer is the mitzvah that gives us the merit to inherit the land of Israel. The Midrash continues and says like this, Don't think that the counting of the Omer is just a light mitzvah. It's like a simple one. Don't think that way. It was because of the merit of the counting of the Omer that Abraham was able to inherit the land of Israel. It's like, wow, Abraham was inheriting the land of Israel because one day the people of Israel, hundreds of years later, would eventually go into the land and out of the land and continue to count the counting of the Omer. So it's like somehow the counting of the Omer and inheriting the land of Israel, they're inextricably connected. They're intertwined spiritually. Somehow those two commandments have to do with us inheriting the land of Israel. So let's really unpack that because we see unbelievably the two new holidays that the people of Israel and believers around the world celebrate, Yom Ha'atzma'ut and Yom Yerushalayim, when do they occur? During the counting of the Omer. Okay, so we're like inheriting the land in this generation, and it happens to be that we are actually celebrating these holidays as we're counting the Omer. And of course, Yom Yerushalayim falling on Chesed Malchut. You just have to open your eyes and realize that something is going on. So now let's go a little bit deeper. We're about to finish up counting the Omer. And I want you to know that this is a personal all-time high for me. If I make it all the I've never in my entire life counted every night without missing one until Shavuot. I'm 43 years old. I always miss one. I'm just too ADHD. Somehow I, I miss it on Friday night. I miss it on Saturday. Sometime I always like forget. One day flies by. But this year I'm actually somehow miraculously, I've counted all the way. If I can just hold on a little bit longer, it'll be amazing. But what are we counting exactly? Counting the Omer. I mean, the Omer in Hebrew is a measurement. You know that? 
Meaning that's like saying we're counting the pounds or we're counting the kilograms or we're counting, we're counting the liters. The liters of what? Liters of water, kilograms of gold. I mean, why is it the counting of a measurement? That is just a weird name for a mitzvah, a counting of the measurement. Usually you care about what you're measuring. I'm counting gold bars. I, I mean, how many ounces? Okay, fine. I'm counting ounces. No, I'm counting silver or I'm counting gold. Here, the mitzvah is actually named after the measurement itself. So we have to ask a question. Okay, well, what is that measurement? So we look, the only one time in the Torah is that measurement noted. And it's measured when they collected the manna from heaven. The Israelites left Egypt and they're traveling through the desert. How did they sustain themselves? What did they eat? They received manna from heaven, of like honey fried pancakes that flew out of the sky. That's literally, uh, seemingly what it was. And how much were they allowed to collect? It says they were allowed to collect each person one omer of the, the manna. So it was like one pound of, of manna each person was allowed to collect. And on Friday, they got two portions. They got two omers. And now when we're counting this omer offering, it's clearly connecting us back to the manna of heaven. It's like, okay, that's really important. Because as soon as we enter into the land of Israel, the manna from heaven stops. So in some ways, counting the omer is continuing this manna from heaven. Now, I want to make that even more clear, and I want to take us into scripture so it doesn't just sound like Jeremy's making up stuff. We got to open up. If we're talking about entering into the land of Israel and we're going in to inherit the land, and we're talking that inheriting the land is interconnected with the counting of the Omer, and obviously the counting of the Omer is interrelated with Shavuot and Revelation, let's open up to Joshua chapter 5, verses 10 and 12. Here's what it says. Children of Israel have passed now the Jordan. They're entering into the land. Now the children of Israel camped in Gilgal and kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month at twilight on the plains of Jericho. And they ate of the produce of the land on that day after the Passover, unleavened bread and parched grain on the very same day. Then the manna ceased on the day after they had eaten the produce of the land, and the children of Israel no longer had manna, but they ate the food of the land of Canaan that year. And so there's a lot there. The first one is, we see, the counting of the Omer starts the day after Passover. Because there is, by the way, an ancient argument between the people that say there is no oral tradition, the Midrash is made up. It says, Shabbat, after the Sabbath, we should count the Omer. So we should probably wait until the Sabbath in Passover and then start counting the Omer. But here we see in the book of Joshua very clearly that they start counting the Omer after Passover, and exactly at that day, the manna stops falling, and we continue counting from that day on. And so what's happening here? Why do we need to count the Omer, and why did the manna stop exactly then? What is going on? And counting the Omer is in some ways the key, the secret to inheriting the land of Israel. And here we see all of these pieces now coming together. So inside heaven, inside, excuse me, the desert, who provided our sustenance? Who gave us our food? It was pretty clear that it was God. There were literally fried honey pancakes flying out of the sky. It was undeniable. There was a, a layer of dew. The manna fell. Another layer of, of dew covered it. The people of Israel went out and they collected the manna. And that's why on Shabbat, by the way, we have two challahs on a challah board. And then we cover the challah over again. The two challahs are a reminder of those two portions of manna. 
that on Shabbat, we didn't have to go out and collect. We were able to rest on the Sabbath. And so until today, we're still remembering the manna falling from heaven. And each one was able to take one challah, one omer worth of manna. And here we are now counting the omer. Now, when we receive manna from heaven, pretty clear directly who is providing that. But when we enter into the land of Israel, there's a danger. All of a sudden, Joshua says, we started eating from the fruits of the land the day after the Passover. All of a sudden now, you see those vineyards behind Ari? We had to plant those vineyards. And we brought experts to teach us how to plant those vineyards and how to tend to those vineyards. And there's a whole process until you finally actually extract wine out of those vineyards. It's an entire Torah in and of itself. So we did that. We had to get on our hands and knees and we had to plant those things and we had to bring the experts and those experts, they're so smart. And who brought us that wine? That's a question. I don't know. Did we do that? Uh, in comes the counting of the Omer. Don't ever think, even when you enter into the land of Israel, that your might and that your power is what brought you here. That's not who provides your sustenance. The same God that provided your sustenance with manna from heaven is the same God that provided you those advisors to help you with your vineyard. The same God that provided the rain in its time. The same God that provided all of your sustenance. And so Sfirata Omer is actually a remembering of gratitude. It's a reminder of living in gratitude. Everything that we have, not only don't take it for granted, but don't think that it is from you. Everything, nothing has changed. Everything is from God. Just as the manna fell from heaven, the money that's in your bank account, that fell from heaven too. The food that's in your refrigerator, that fell from heaven too. And as we continue to live out our life in the land of Israel, where God has given us more freedom to really express ourselves, to express our talents, if our talents bring in the bread, remember where that bread comes from. Now the Midrash says something amazing. It says, don't let the mitzvah of the Omer be easy in your eyes, because the mitzvah of the Omer is what Abraham was able to merit the land of Israel. The Midrash then continues. How does the Midrash know this? It brings a verse. And I've given to you and your offspring after you, the land of your sojourns, the whole land of Canaan, as an everlasting possession and as a covenant. It says, in a covenant, sages ask, what is that covenant? Mitzvah of the Omer is the covenant. That is the covenant on the side of the people of Israel. And without understanding, like, what does that even mean? What is behind the mitzvah of the Omer? The heart of it is gratitude. The heart of the mitzvah of the Omer is counting our blessings, counting how much we have to be grateful for, remembering that everything that we have is like manna from heaven. That actually is the covenant that God has with us. It is the frequency that we need to be in in order to receive revelation. When we say we're counting the Omer, we're counting the Omer, and then finally at the 50th day, we come to Shavuot, we've practiced 50 days of gratitude. 50 days of gratitude is actually what sort of, the, if we have to turn our spiritual antenna to the right frequency, gratitude is the frequency to receive revelation. Now, I want to think about this for a while. We're experiencing gratitude. And if you feel gratitude, 
and you allow yourself to be opened up and feel a little bit vulnerable for a little bit and really sense gratitude. You're so grateful for all that you have. Eventually, gratitude turns into indebtedness. And what's the difference between gratitude and indebtedness? It's almost the same word, but the difference is indebtedness, like it says, is I feel a debt. It's like, wow, I have been so good to Ari. I wake up extra early and I go pray in his minion just for him. Now he feels indebted to me. He wants to give back. He wants to give me presents. He wants to be nice to me. He wants to host me for a Shabbat meal. You're saying meal. the quiet part out loud, Jeremy. You're supposed to say that it's for Hashem and you're not praying for Ari. You're like totally missing the whole no, marriage. No, no. My prayers are for God, but my minion is for you. That's, let's make that clear. Okay. God loves my friendship with you and I'm doing it directly for you and all of that goes up to God eventually. But what happens is Ari has a sense, he's not just grateful, he's indebted to me. That's how, that's how grateful he is. He feels an indebtedness to me. <laughs> and what happens when you feel indebtedness? You want to give back. That's like so much gratitude turns into indebtedness. And then now we can really understand why is gratitude the step before revelation at Shavuot? Why is that? It's like, I'm so great. Thank you for taking us out of Egypt. Thank you for saving my family. Thank you for all that you've given me. Thank you for the manna from heaven. Thank you for all that you've provided. Thank you. I, Hashem, you've given me the gift of life. You've brought me to where I am today. I, I feel so indebted. I want to give back. Um, you want to give back? You're indebted. You feel so much gratitude. Here you go. Here's the Torah. Go help the orphan. Go help the poor. Go spread the light. Go give now. You want to give back the gift of life that I've given to you? You finally feel enough gratitude that you feel indebted in that gratitude? That's the place that you can now accept the Torah. So many people have this weird concept of like the Torah being given by a God way out there. And it's like a burden that we have to carry with us from a God way up there that dumped all this mitzvahs on us. Now we're under the law and we have to carry this tradition and this religion. It's like, no, that's, that's really not what happened. Revelation comes after gratitude and gratitude turns into indebtedness. And then God says, you want to give back now? You feel indebted? Here, let's build the kingdom together. You can be partners with me in building my kingdom on earth in bringing my presence back to earth. Every time you're kind to your wife, every time you're kind to your husband, the Shekhinah will dwell between us. You're bringing my presence back to earth. Here is the Torah. I'm giving you a way of giving back. So to the Torah is... Um, an answer. It's an answer to an inner calling that we would naturally feel if we actually woke up and allowed ourselves to be grateful for the gift of life. But the media is going to scare you, and the media is going to distract you, and the media is going to entertain you. And instead of actually feeling gratitude and then wanting to give back for this incredible gift that we call life, and then giving back, we're like distracted <laughs> and we got, we turn off and then all of a sudden we start feeling entitled. Like, oh, why is this so, like, why is this like that? And it's like, well, no, 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 no. That's, that path will lead to sadness, will lead to depression, will lead to frustration. Gratitude will lead to a life of service. Gratitude will lead to a life of growth. Gratitude will lead to a life ultimately of fulfillment and happiness. And the Torah is teaching us, read Practice the Omer, practice the Omer. And when you enter into the land of Israel, that covenant that believers had is a covenant of gratitude. And gratitude is what will allow us to inherit the land of Israel. Because even when our military is so sophisticated and our Iron Dome are protecting us from the missiles, we know 
who gave the engineers the brains and the technology and the innovation to create the Iron Dome to begin with? That is what we need to be grateful for. That's manna from heaven just as much as the manna was given to us from heaven way back when. And so now here we are on our way from Yom Yerushalayim to Shavuot. We're still counting the Omer. And we've now entered into another book of the Torah, which is just one more piece to the puzzle. And so we left now the book of Leviticus. And the book of Leviticus is called in Hebrew, Vaikra which means, and he called onto Moses. Vaikra is, and he called. This book in English is called Numbers, but in Hebrew, it's called Bamidbar, which means in the desert, which is a little bit, I think, a better name because really all of the stories of Bamidbar are the stories of the Israelites as they're traveling through the desert for 40 years. But Bamidbar in Hebrew is the same letters. It's literally the same words as Medaber, as speak. So we have one book, and he called us, and now we've entered into a new book, in his speech. And so it's two elements of revelation that are bringing us now to Shavuot. And I really feel like I, I felt this when I went out to pasture this Shabbat with my son and my daughter, Emunai Noam. And we went out, and the sheep this Shabbat were just crazy. There was a whole wave of births in our flock. And we take the mothers out, even when they're still nursing, we take them out for a few hours and bring them back. But when we took them out this time, they were just confused, anxious. They were just unsettled. I, in their, they wanted to go back and be with their baby lambs. and But it's not healthy for them to stay inside all day long. We have to take them out. It's good for them to go to the bathroom. It's good for them to exercise. So we take them out for two and a half, three hours Shabbat morning. But I see that they're just so confused. And there are two ways that you can communicate with sheep. And King David tells us, the Lord is our shepherd, I shall not lack. And that's really a deep psalm. And he's saying the same way that we communicate with our sheep, the Lord is our shepherd. Pay attention. That's the way he communicates with us. And so there's one way to call sheep. And if you walk ahead of them and they know you as their shepherd, if you whistle to them, they'll follow you. And that is a little bit symbolic of the book of Vaikra, and he called. And if you listen, or if you have a strong intuition, sometimes you can feel God calling you in a certain direction or sort of guiding you away from a certain direction. And that's like, and he's calling us. And to be a believer is to live in that tension of where am I being called? Am I living a guided life? But there's another way that sheep are directed. And that's when you whack them in the head or on the back or on the side. Now we have a, um, a foam baseball bat that we use. So it doesn't hurt them. It sort of startles them, but it's a foam baseball bat. And then me and Noam, we practice our baseball swings with the rocks in the mountains. And sometimes when the sheep are just not going in the right way, you got to whack them with your staff. And actually, King David says, and your staff, and your staff and your rod will comfort me. Well, as David is a shepherd, he's just telling you the truth. His staff sometimes is whacking those sheep in the right direction because one of them is going off the path and you got to put them back to the path because they're not going to where the pasture is. I got it. They don't know. They're sheep. They're silly. They're not very intelligent. So they have to either listen to the shepherd whistle. And if they don't listen to the whistle, they're going to get whacked. And you look at the book of Bamidbar, and Israel is getting whacked with a stick 
a lot. God is speaking to them quite constantly all throughout the book of Bamidaber, Bamidbar. He is constantly correcting them and correcting them and correcting them. And it's like, if we would just have listened to Vayikra, just follow the whistle, follow the thin, soft voice, and God will take you to where he wants you to be. But if you don't, he's going to speak to you. He won't call to you anymore. He's going to make it really clear. It's going to be speaking to you. And how is that going to happen? With his rod and with his staff. And I remember one of the members of our fellowship, I mean, a dear friend of our family's, uh, her name is Lisa Taylor from Tennessee. And I remember she taught me this Torah. It must've been more than 10 years ago. And I never forgot it. She told me that in the morning, she has a, she has more children than we do. So automatically that's like, hats off to you, Lisa Taylor. Cause we usually take pride in having six kids. When we meet families that have more than six kids, we're like, good for you. Cause we can barely make it with six. I don't know how you do with any more than that. And so she has a big family and all of her children are just marvelous. I love every single one of them. And she told me in the morning that she prays to God, God, please correct me if I veer from your path. I want to be corrected. And, and immediately that image of, and your staff and your rod will comfort me. But I never heard it verbalized in such a beautiful way before where she says, God, I want to align my life with your will. If I start veering from the path, please correct me. Whack me with that foam baseball bat and make sure that I get back in line. I do not want to veer from the path of your righteousness. I want to walk in the light. Correct me. I'm asking, please whack me with your rod and put me back in line. And I'm like, wow, that is such a beautiful way to live. Now, the only way to live that way is if your foundation is gratitude. Because once you wake up in the morning and you're grateful, ask God to correct you because you're already so grateful with what you have. And the truth is everyone should be so grateful for what they have because it could all be taken away. Everything can be taken away at any moment, all the time. And so everything we have is so precious. And when we're grateful, then we're open to also saying, God, correct me in my life if I'm wrong. We're entering into Bamidbar and every single Parsha, the Jews are just messing it up and they're corrected and they're corrected. And then there's a famine and then there's snakes and there's like correction after correction. But in our own life, we're saying, listen, we're coming up to Shavuot now. God, I don't want just the revelation at Mount Sinai. I want revelation in my life I want to hear your whistle calling me and I want to follow that. And if I can't follow that, and for whatever reason, I veer from the path, I'm asking you, it's okay, correct me and let me understand the correction. If I'm veering from the path, I want to be brought back in alignment with your will. And then when you think about it, how do we know? I have a choice that I need to make. You know, there's... um. There's some single people that are in the fellowship and they were gonna have to make a big choice. Should I marry this boy or should I marry that boy? Should I marry this girl or should I marry that? It's a tough choice to make. And you know, there's a lot of boys and girls out there. And the answer that I was given is that when you have a big choice to make and you're doing your very best to receive some type of guidance, some type of revelation, some type of intuition that's not just from you, you know that you've made the right choice when you feel after the Jews repent in the book of Judges, it says, and the land was quiet for 40 years, or the land was then at peace for a certain amount of time. 
when you finally make that choice and you feel peace in your heart for at least a little bit, it's not going to last forever. But when you feel that peace, you've done it. You've made the best choice that you possibly can. And that is the way forward. But you can only feel that and you can only ask for that if the foundation is built upon gratitude. That's the reason why the people of Israel, our name now is not Israel anymore. Our name are Jews. That's a bizarre thing. In the, in the Torah, we're not called Jews. We're called Hebrews. And then we're called Israelites or the children of Israel. And then somehow today, the remnants of Israel that has survived throughout all these exiles and all these turns, we're all called Jews because the final message of the people of Israel, and Zechariah says it, 10 men from the nations will grab hold of the corner of a garment of a Judean man, of a Jewish man. It's like, no, we're going to identify with these last remnant days. I need to hold on to the Jew. What does the word to be a Jew mean? It literally comes from the word lehodot, which means to give thanks. That is the core of our being. And that is the message that we as the people of Israel, the Jewish people, need to be spreading today before Shavuot. We've been counting the Omer, preparing for revelation. What are we really doing? We're building up our gratitude. We're building up the sense of gratitude. And that gratitude opens us up, opens us up, turns the frequency on so we can finally receive divine revelation. And then we can inherit Yom Ha'atzma'ut. Then we can inherit Yom Yerushalayim. And then, please God, we'll be able to hear the whistle of God in our own life. That thin voice, silent voice, a cold mamadaka, that's how Elijah the prophet calls it. A thin whistle, just a thin, quiet voice that's calling us from inside toward our destiny. And if we need to, we might get corrected. <laughs> but that correction is good because we want to walk in the light. So may we be blessed to take the light of Yom Yerushalayim, take the light of the Omer, take the light of gratitude, and let us feel indebted and let us want to give back and let us receive the Torah and hear the calling in our own life to fix this world through the kingdom of God, to let olam and banish the darkness once and for all. Thank you all so much. May you be blessed as our dearest friends, as our chavrutas, as our study partners, as our prayer partners. I just um, can't wait. You know, it's so fun. Finally, we get to see fellowship members sometimes when we travel, then sometimes they travel to us. And virtual is amazing, but in the flesh is the best. So I'm planning maybe, I hope, maybe a one-week trip to the United States this summer, and I'll see if we can kind of get around, maybe gather together in one place for one Shabbat or something like that. We'll figure it out. But that's sort of in the works, and I'll keep you posted since then. But um, may you be blessed, my dear fellowship. Adonai Shalom, my friends. To join the Land of Israel Fellowship, to attend our live interactive Zoom sessions, to participate in the Fellowship Connection Q&A events, or even just to binge on past sessions, click on the link below or go to thelandofisrael.com backslash fellowship and join our family of hundreds of people from around the world broadcasting light from the land of Israel, live from the Judean frontier.